I'll turn in your Bibles, if you would, please, to Jude. There is only one chapter in Jude. So when you find Jude, you've found where we need to be. If you were not here last Sunday and you're not sure where Jude is, let me give you a little guidance. You can either do one or two things. You can open up to the table of contents in the front of your Bible, find the page number and go directly there, or just go to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and then go backwards one book and you'll run into Jude. We read the entire letter last Sunday and focused our exposition on verses 1 and 2. This morning, I'm not going to read the entire letter, but we are going to continue on with verses 3 and 4. The title of the message is Contending for the Faith. That's the theme of the book, Contending for the Faith. Let's look at it together here in Jude, verse 3. Beloved, While I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I've been thinking all week of the verses that we looked at last Sunday where Jude humbly identifies himself in verse 1 as simply a servant of Jesus Christ. I've been fixated on that because, as we know, he's the half-brother of Jesus. And of all the ways that he could have introduced himself, he chooses not to boast about privilege or pedigree. He simply sees himself like any other Christian, a servant who is joyfully submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Of course, in the opening Two verses we examine together of Jude, the author, his audience, and his greeting to them. Jude is writing to those who are, as verse 1 says, called, sanctified, and kept in Jesus Christ. In other words, these to whom Jude is writing are true believers. And his greeting that he prays is something that we possess by virtue of our faith in Jesus. And his prayer is is that these things we possess by virtue of our faith, that they will be multiplied in our life. What are those things? Mercy, peace, and love. He says, I pray as believers, those of you who are called, sanctified, and kept in Jesus, that you will have a whole lot of mercy, a whole lot of peace, and a whole lot of love. It's a tremendously helpful opening that reminds every true Christian of who we are in terms of our identity and what we have in Christ. Now we've come to verse 3 and 4, which contains the theme of the book. And we briefly last week pointed it out. But today we're going to dive in head first and swim here for a little while. 
Uh, Number one, if you're taking notes and you want to write these things down so that you can follow the structure of the text as well as the intent of the book, the the first thing that I I jotted down here was an honest acknowledgement. That's what we see at the beginning, verse 3. An honest acknowledgement. Look what Jude says in verse 3. He says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. In other words... The letter I am writing to you is not the letter I wanted to write to you. The letter I am writing to you is not the letter I wanted to write to you. J.B. Phillips in his paraphrase put it like this. I fully intended, dear friends, to write to you about our common salvation. Now, Jude is going to explain in verse 4 what it was that caused him to change course, but let's at least stop and consider first how honest he is about what he initially desired to do. He genuinely and eagerly desired to rejoice with them in the blessings of our common salvation. And there's an interesting little phrase there. I wanted to rejoice with you. I I desired eagerly, diligently to, to write to you about the common salvation that we have. What does it mean about our common salvation? Well, it is a common salvation in that all believers possess the same salvation. It's very important that you understand that. All believers possess the same salvation. That is one of the reasons why we call it the common salvation. That is, we are all saved the same way. If you are saved this morning, you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, and for the glory of God alone. God doesn't save some people by works and some people by grace. No, He saves everybody by grace. He doesn't save some people by Jesus and some people by morality. No, he saves everybody by Jesus. It is a common salvation in that we have all been reconciled to God the same way through Jesus Christ our Lord. Not only are we saved the same way, but we enjoy the same graces. And by grace, I don't mean gifting, because we don't all enjoy the same giftings. Some of us are gifted differently, but we all have the same graces. And by graces, I mean we all have the same forgiveness. We all have the same mercy, the same access to God, the same peace, the same Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, the same eternal Heaven, it is a common salvation because of what we experience together in that same faith. It's also a common salvation in that all believers enter into the unique fellowship of salvation. Again, I I bring your attention back to the word common because the Greek word for common here is koines. It means something that is shared together. Something that is shared together. That that salvation that we possess is something that we share together. Of course, we all have differences and distinctions, and there are many of them that we can list about ourselves, even as believers. 
But the one most important thing that we share together is our common faith. We may have different backgrounds, different viewpoints, different politics, and whatever you want to list that are distinctly different about each of us. But the one thing that we share together is our faith in Jesus Christ, is the salvation that God has wrought in us. I came across this quote this week and and loved it. Spurgeon, of course, that that is uh, Charles Spurgeon, not Haddon James Wright. He said, upon other matters, there are distinctions among believers, but yet there is a common salvation enjoyed by the Presbyterian as well as by the Anglican, the Methodist as well as by the Baptist. Those who are in Christ are more near kin than they know of, and their intense unity and deep essential truth is greater force than most of them even imagine. Only give it scope, and it'll work wonders. Uh, We are too often the guilty ones of drawing distinctions where they need not be drawn. But yet in those distinctions, God brings us together and reminds us that we all have as believers more in common than we sometimes want to admit. And that is we bring the commonality of our faith. Now, Jude is going to certainly talk about salvation in the letter. So what in the world does he mean by this change of course? Uh, Dick Lucas said perhaps we should think that where he intended to write a more general letter about the common salvation, the one he actually wrote is more concentrated, dealing with only one aspect of salvation. Which, which leads us to the second point. Not only do we see an honest acknowledgement, the letter that he's going to write is not the letter that he wanted to write. We see now him changing course, secondly, to a necessary appeal a necessary appeal. Again, verse 3, he said, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our salvation, our common salvation, I found it necessary. I had to change course a little bit. I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So again, Judas saying, this is not the letter I was planning to write to you, but I felt it necessary to write and appeal to you to earnestly contend for the faith. Now this is coming from the heart of someone who really loves these people. Because he's not sitting back thinking to himself, well, they were bound to let their guard down sooner or later. I guess they'll just have to figure this one out for themselves. I'm going to stay on task here and write what I wanted to write about, and they'll just figure all that stuff out. No, no, no. He cares for them. He loves them. He addresses them as beloved, and then out of a heart of deep concern, he urges them to contend for the faith that it is necessary they do this. So think about a couple of things with me there in your Bibles as you look at this verse together with me. Think about first the subject of this appeal. What is the subject of this appeal? Well, the subject of it is the faith. He wants us to contend. He says, I find it necessary to appeal to you to contend. Contend for what? Contend for the faith. The faith. What is the faith? What does he mean by this? Well, he's talking about those things 
those essential truths that make up the gospel. That is what is meant by the faith. He's not talking about faith within itself. He's talking about the faith, the faith. Those essential truths that make up the gospel. But what are those essential truths? Well, it begins with the inerrancy and sufficiency of Scripture. There's no point in trying to believe a Bible that we say is not accurate. It's not true. And so everything that we understand in terms of faith begins with the inerrancy of Scripture, that this is God's Word, that it is inspired from beginning to end, that there is no error contained within it, that it is sufficient for every need that we have. That's where all faith begins. And so when we talk about the essential truths that make up the gospel, we're talking about first the inerrancy of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture. We're also talking about the eternal plan for mankind's redemption by the triune God. We're talking about the virgin birth, the sinless life, and the eternal deity of Jesus. We're talking about the substitutionary death of Christ for sinners and the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. The essential truths that make up the gospel, the the faith, is that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're talking about the establishment of the church as the bride of Christ and the body of Christ through the sacrificial blood of Jesus. And of course, in the essentials, we're talking about the return of Christ. And the final judgment of all people to either eternal life in heaven or eternal condemnation in hell. This is what he means by the faith. The faith. The faith that he says here has been delivered to the saints once for all. Think about this. The faith, the faith that we believe, the faith that we hold to, the faith that we've devoted our lives to, it's something that has been delivered to us. It hasn't been invented, designed, or founded by us. It has been delivered to us by God himself in Jesus Christ. And just pause for a moment and think about the immense privilege that the gospel has been passed down to you. That you've been put in a situation in life where you have heard the gospel, that you know the gospel. And I pray this morning that you have believed the gospel. What a privilege that that has been delivered to us. It's been passed down to us. It didn't skip me. It, It did not make it to me. No, by God's sovereign plan, mercy and grace, he allowed it to be passed down to me. What an immense privilege. It's been delivered, been delivered to you. No group of men created this. No religious hierarchy drew this up. No, this came from God, the faith, and it was delivered. It was delivered, and it's been delivered once for all, once for all. That is, God isn't going to give another gospel. He didn't deliver this gospel and then decide later to change it. No, he's not going to change it. And we better not even think about trying to change it. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is God's one perfect, completed, and delivered gospel for all who will believe for all of eternity. Now, understanding this is important as we come to the next section. Because I've heard a lot of sermons, even though I said last week this is one of the, uh, one of the uh, books of the Bible that are often ignored in my ultra-fundamentalist upbringing, I've heard a lot of sermons about this verse that took the faith and decided to go on a little tangent about anything and everything that they thought you ought to fight for. But I need you to understand something. The faith that Jude is referring to are the essential truths that make up the gospel. The faith is not your traditions. The faith is not your preferences. The faith is not debatable matters of Christian liberty. The faith here is not even secondary or tertiary doctrines. Jude is referring to the essential truths that make up the gospel of Jesus Christ. And his appeal to us is that we would earnestly contend for those things. Earnestly contend for the faith. Now, the word translated contend is the same Greek word, interesting enough, that is used to describe the agony of an athlete in competition. It's also the same word that is used to describe the vigor of a soldier in battle. He's making an appeal that you and I as believers, with great energy, would defend the faith that has been passed down to us and to fight for it if necessary. Fight for what? Fight for the faith, the gospel, the essential truth. Not the traditions, not the preferences, not the debatable matters, not the secondary, but no, to fight for the gospel. That is what we are to contend for. I would go as far as to say that Jude here is not a polemicist. One who is always looking for a fight, seeking an excuse, any excuse he can to spur a controversy. He's not advocating that Paul, or excuse me, he's not advocating what Paul called the personality of a brawler. Some people thrive on that. They thrive on confrontation. They thrive on arguments. They thrive on fighting. They want to contend with you about everything. They would meet me at the back door this morning and question whether or not I actually had a blue sport coat on. Because they just want to fight about it. In fact, they're not happy. Something's wrong if we're not fighting about something. That's not what Jude is saying here. He's not a brawler. He's not a polemicist. He's not finding something to fight about. And that's the danger of attempting to apply Scripture without understanding the context of Scripture. In fact, as we will eventually see when we come to verse 17... How Jude tells us to contend is by focusing on our own spiritual disciplines. It's by focusing on our own spiritual disciplines while trusting God's promise to keep us from stumbling. Remember, we talked about this briefly last week. God 
keeping his true children is the melodic line of the letter. That no matter how aggressive they are who trample on the faith, God will preserve. God will keep his people through it. So, so Jude is not a letter trumpeting us to just go out and fight everybody. Jude is a letter trumpeting us to focus on our own spiritual faith while trusting God that no matter how intense the battle gets, he will keep us. He will keep us. So we have to understand the call here to contend in reference to the faith, the essentials, it's a plea to be active, okay? Not passive. Not passive, active. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, when the gospel of our faith is being belittled, altered, or oppressed, that is not a time for you and I to retreat, compromise, or surrender. It's a time for us to actively devote ourselves to the faith, to actively devote ourselves to defend the faith. So again, I I must bring this out because it's so very important. The faith here is the essential truths that make up the gospel. This is what we're to be devoted to. This is what we are to earnestly defend. We don't go looking for fights just to fight. No, we contend for the faith. We guard the gospel. We defend the gospel. We stand for the gospel. And we kick out of our ears any voice that wants to belittle the gospel. This is not about traditions. I know we all have them. I know we all have preferences. We all could talk about matters of Christian liberty. But can I just say in passing without prolonging this any further, please, believer, don't die on the wrong hills. It's not worth it. What you think is contending for the faith is not contending at all. In fact, it's more of a disturbance to the faith than it is a help to the faith. Don't die on the wrong hills. Don't fight the wrong battles. Judah's saying we need contenders, yes, but we need the right kind of contenders. We need people who are contending for the, the right things, fighting on the right hills. And that is the hill of our faith. The faith that has been delivered to us. The one faith that will never change. And so, this is his necessary appeal. This is that one concentrated area that he feels like is such a problem right now. That though he wanted to write on the general commonality of the gospel that we share together and all its rich blessings. He says, I I, got to take some time, even though it's brief, to tell you to be careful. To be careful. Because it is necessary that you and I stand, guard, and defend the gospel. And that, that brings us to the third point, and, and, and this is the clear reason why, okay? The clear reason. We have an honest acknowledgement. We have a necessary appeal. And thirdly, we have the clear reason. Why does Jude make an appeal for us to earnestly contend for the faith? Because look at it there in verse 4. Because... Certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. They are ungodly men 
who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we need to fight for the gospel. This is why we need to stand for the gospel, to guard it, to defend it in our homes, in our church, in our heart. Because there will always be opposition to God's truth. That's how this whole fallen humanity began. Because Satan, in his deceitful and cunning manner, caused God's perfect man and woman to question his truth. And since that moment to this day and until the Lord returns, there will always be opposition to the truth of God. Now, we know this to be true outside the church, right? We know that to be true. If you haven't seen that, then just turn on the news. It will only take about five minutes, and you will see that the gospel is opposed, that the truth of God is belittled and maligned. Who would have ever thought That in our world, there would be people legitimately, legitimately upset because a baby cannot live. These things are all around us. The onslaught of gospel truth, we know it to be true outside these walls. But we're not always quick to see it inside these walls. We're not always quick to see it inside even the big C church. You know what I mean by that? We're the little C church. We're just one of millions of Christians in the world, which is the big C church. It's easy for us to see it outside the church. It's not always easy for us to see it inside the church. So Jude says we got to commit ourselves to defend the faith because there are those on the outside who oppose the faith and there may be some on the inside who are perverting the faith. Notice what he says about these certain people. And I love how he uses that phrase, certain people. Certain people. I think it's important for us. He doesn't necessarily identify one individual, calling them by name, even though other writers have done that. I think what he wants us to see is that there will always be certain people. (laughs) There will always be certain people who are going to do to the church today what they tried to do to the church then. I wrote down three things, and we'll just wrap it up with this as we think about the reason why we are to defend. Number one, Jude says they creep into the church unnoticed. That's the first thing he says. These certain men, these certain people, they creep into the church unnoticed. Look at it there in verse 4. For certain men have crept in unnoticed. Now, I don't like that one bit. Not at all. I don't like creeping things that are not easily noticeable. Uh, You would probably find it very humorous to watch me mow my lawn. Because I have this deathly fear of snakes that even if a twig in the corner of my eye moves slightly, I am automatically on guard. Is this going to be the day that I'm going to go down, you know? 
And then after I realize that it's just a, a little twig, I, I look around to make sure nobody is watching me. I don't like creeping things that are not easily noticeable. But here's why they go unnoticed. Because they appear to be godly when in actual fact, they're very much, he says here, ungodly people. They don't walk through the doors of Laurel Baptist Church and announce, hey, excuse me this morning, I'm here to challenge the sufficiency of Scripture. Will you please allow me a few minutes to speak? I'm here to challenge the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Would you please allow me the opportunity to lead a fellowship group? No, they don't walk through the front door showcasing who they really are. They slip in unnoticed. Slowly climbing the ranks. Quietly winning people over. And when the moment is right, they will corrupt the minds of those whose faith is not firmly grounded. And let me tell you something. These certain people are creeping in everywhere. They're creeping into your Bible study. They're creeping into the podcast that you listen to. They're creeping into the television programs that you watch. They're creeping into the books that you're buying. They're creeping into our seminaries who are supposed to be teaching the essentials of the faith. But they're perverting it and altering it and distorting it. And they are subtly driving people away from the truth of Jesus. They creep in. How many of you have an alarm system at your house? Would you raise your hand for just a moment? So my wife and I must be the only ones who are scared out of our minds. Well, I have one because I, I like to know if anybody's going to intrude on me in the middle of the night. Every night, perhaps, you set that alarm as we do so the whole house will be awakened in case of an intruder. That is what Jude is doing through this short letter. He is helping you and I to set a gospel alarm. That when these intruders come in unnoticed, the internal siren will sound and alert us to false teaching. But, but Jude tells us in verse 4 that although they may not always be noticed by us, they are always noticed by God. <laughs> They're always known to God. He said they were long ago marked out for this condemnation. That is, they have their punishment coming these ungodly people who present them as ungodly, uh, present themselves as godly people, they're creeping in, they're, 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 they're slipping in. They're not even saved. But yet you are mesmerized by them. You're listening to them. You're following them. But they're not even saved. It's the blind leading the blind. And those people have already been marked out. Interesting enough, that phrase marked out is the same word that Jude uses to describe our keeping in God in verse number 1. Just as believers are kept in God, he says these type of deceivers are also kept in God. That's the negative side of God's keeping. The positive side of God's keeping is that true people are kept in Christ forever. The negative side is those who deceive him will be kept to condemnation. They creep in. They slip in unnoticed. Not only that, but secondly, I wrote down, they distort the grace of God. They distort the grace of God. Notice what it says here. They turn the grace of our God into lewdness. Now, lewdness speaks of sensuality. 
You might understand it like this. Loose living marked by pleasure. Now, it primarily indicates sexual pleasure. But it, but it does, in some contexts, have a broader meaning than that. It could refer to drunkenness or greed. General immorality that is often marked by loose living. So what these intruders do is they begin to say, here's what they begin to say. They say that the grace of God gives us freedom to live however we please and to enjoy whatever we desire. They turn the grace of God into sensuality. Again, I don't have time to go into all of this, but just to get you thinking a little bit, there, there, there are two great threats to the grace of God, two dangerous threats to the grace of God. One is legalism, legalism which burdens people with unbiblical rules. The other extreme to that is antinomianism, which says there are no rules. So there's those who say everything is a rule. There are those who say nothing is a rule. Do, do whatever you please. That's what these people were doing. Let me just remind us, church family, that it is a dangerous sound when voices begin to sneer at calls for holiness. It is a dangerous voice that laughs at purity, that mocks righteous living. God has called believers to be conformed to the image of Christ. That is why he saved us. Not so that we would be greater conformed to the world, but that we would be greater conformed to Christ. Grace isn't a license to sin. It's a liberty to enjoy in the fellowship of Christ. So he says, be careful of these people who creep in. They, they slip in. And their voices say to you, hey, you're a Christian. You're saved. Do whatever you want to do. Live however you want to live. God's forgiven you anyway. That voice has turned the grace of God into nothing but sensual pleasure. Paul said it like this in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? I want you to listen to this quote. Dick Lucas said this. And he's been very helpful to me in my study of Jude. Old, old British Anglican pastor. I've been greatly helped by him. He, he said, to some... The gospel seems to offer total freedom today on the basis of total forgiveness tomorrow. Think about that. To some, the gospel seems to offer total freedom today on the basis of total forgiveness tomorrow. Now let's think about ourselves for just a moment. Are there days even as a believer, that you are tempted to presume upon the grace of God? I will indulge today because I know God will forgive me tomorrow. It's easy to say that this is the problem with those on the outside, but let's just be honest. We all are weak. We all have frail hearts that are prone to giving in to temptation. In fact, Kent Hughes said, presumption is our greatest sin. So let's approach this with humility. Conscious of our own weaknesses when we are tempted to distort the grace of God by pursuing sin on the basis that God will simply forgive me later. Here's the problem. When the gospel is distorted, holiness is distorted. 
and people are left deceived. But Jude said, this is how you spot unsaved, ungodly intruders. Unsaved, ungodly intruders distort the grace of God. All right, thirdly, they deny the sovereignty of God and the lordship of Jesus Christ. What do they do? They distort the grace of God and they deny the sovereignty of God and the lordship of Jesus Christ. Look at the last phrase. These certain men, these certain people, they deny the only, now underline this, Lord God. They deny the only Lord God. They deny our Lord Jesus Christ. The emphasis that Jude puts here is on Lord. They deny the sovereignty of God, which actually in our Bibles, English word for Lord is the same word. Like in English, we see it spelled and sounded the same way, Lord, Lord. But, it, but, in, but in the Greek, it's two different words here. The one that he puts in front of God is the Greek word despotis. It's talking about God's sovereignty, God's control of all things. And then the Greek word that he puts for Lord in front of Jesus is curious, which talks about his lordship. Think about this. In the end, these intruders do not deny his deity. They do not deny his person. They don't even deny his work. What they deny is that God is sovereignly in control of all things. What they deny is that Jesus is Lord over all things. It seems to me that what Jude is saying is they're happy with him being known as Savior, but not so much Lord. And they separate the two. They separate Savior from Lord instead of identifying him for who he truly is, Savior and Lord. Of course, at the heart of this is their refusal to submit to Jesus as Lord. Martin Luther said they consider not him as their Lord, but themselves as their Lord. Which is why they give way to loose living. You see, the clear reason why we must contend for the faith is because ungodly intruders creep into our lives unnoticed. Perhaps they're sitting on your bookshelf even now, waiting on your electronic device even now. They distort the grace of God while denying God's sovereignty, while denying the lordship of Jesus Christ. Church, I want you to see this. Contend for the faith is not a rant of a hard-hearted traditionalist. Contend for the faith is the word of a warm-hearted man who is passionate for the glory of Christ and the gospel of grace. And he wants you and I to be as passionate about guarding those things ourselves. For the sake of our children, for the sake of our own hearts, and for the future of his church. Friend, be deceived no longer. Jesus Christ came from heaven. He lived a perfect sinless life, died on a cross in the place of sinners to pardon sin once and for all. 
He was raised from the dead to accomplish the work of salvation so that those who trust in him alone as Lord and Savior may experience new life in Christ and reconciliation with God forever. That is the gospel. This is the essential truth of the faith. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you can be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Thomas said, Lord, where are you going and how can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Friend, this is the gospel of grace. Do you believe it? Don't be deceived by the voices who want to distort God's grace and deny that God is sovereignly in control and that Jesus is Lord of your life. That's what it means to follow him, to recognize what he has done in my place. And therefore submit my life, as Jude said, as a servant following the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us contend for this. Let us proclaim it. And let us defend it at all costs. Let's stand together for prayer.